And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. and welcome back to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic, presented by BetMGM. I'm Max Boltman, and with me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. And the Red Wings are coming off a weekend sweep of the Columbus Blue Jackets, their first of the year, I believe. Is that their first of the year they've, they've beaten a team twice in a row? I think that's the first sweep because they've won two consecutive games, but it was a back end and then a, and a front end. The first of uh, yeah, then the first of the next series. But this is a this is a season. This is a nice uh, two game sweep here, and it comes at probably the perfect time, uh, depending on your perspective. If your team tank, you are livid right now. But uh, if you're of the mind that the Red Wings needed to uh, get out of the the misery business that they were in in Nashville, this was exactly the kind of response you were probably looking for, the kind of response the Red Wings were looking for. They come back from what Bobby Ryan called possibly their hardest practice of the season on Friday, and they turn in two two games that, that looked like it. Um, in a good way, not in the way that they were burned out, but in the way that they got the message because uh, they, they poured it on Columbus through through two games. Yeah, I mean, I'm usually accustomed to screen capping Red Wings games to show the shot counter more out of hilarity of the Red Wings side of things. But at one point in that first period of the first game, shots were 15 to two Detroit. Like this was a vintage 2007-08 uh, team shot counter I actually started looking up like what was the largest shot differential by the wings in the first period which if you'd like to know it's actually 28 to 4 um <laughs> that they did back in 0708 but uh regardless I thought this was one of the most impressive kind of two game series not only did they beat the jackets they dominated the jackets like I think uh there's the Tortorella press conference after the second game where he goes you know, you're, you're asking me about goaltender interference after we just got our butts kicked, which in reality, that's exactly what happened. Detroit absolutely waxed the Jackets. They did, and, and they led 2-0 after that first period that you're referencing where they at one point were out shooting Columbus 15-2. It could have been 4-0 easily. Um, Dylan Larkin caught a couple of posts and maybe a side of the net in there, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. I thought he was outstanding, uh, in, in that, especially in that Saturday game. Yeah, I mean, Larkin and Mantha... Uh, you know, seeing that line change getting set up. So, you know, the going into that game, that first game, uh, Jeff Blashill decides to make a change. They go with Larkin, Fabry, and Zadina on the top line. They move Mantha down to the second line to play with uh, Nemesnikov and, and, and Bobby Ryan. And those two lines were absolutely dynamite. I thought Larkin, you know, like you said, in the first period, uh, I think he hit three posts in the first period, uh, maybe four if you include the side of the net one. Uh, that you're referencing. Both Larkin and Mantha finished with 10 shots attempted at the net. 
Uh, Larkin hits the net on six of them. Mantha hits the net on five of them. Zadina's not far behind with seven attempts, five on net. Uh, I mean, between the three of them, you're talking about 27 shot attempts and 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 17 shots on goal, which, you know, funnily enough, is almost the entire amount of shots that Columbus generated. So you really needed to see those three guys step up. And I thought all three of them were fantastic, uh, particularly Larkin. Yeah, the chemistry between the three of them was great. And, and I feel like I should say this because I, in my bold predictions prior to this year, I predicted a step back from Robbie Fabry. I mean, I'm almost scared to go back and look at the rest of that column because the only predictions I really remember <laughs> were that Chicago, the Red Wings would finish above Chicago and that Chicago, because Chicago is going to have terrible goaltending. Uh, that makes me look like an idiot. That Robbie Fabry would take a step back. He has made me look like an idiot. He looks great this year, especially after being liberated to the wing and, and getting to play on Larkin's line. A career scoring year from John Merrill. Uh, that's not happening. <laughs> and the same from Anthony Mantha. Uh, I don't know what the rest of them were, but uh, no, remembering those four is kind of enough for me to know that I don't know anything. I mean, I think you also had a big season from Thomas Grace in there, right? Or <laughs> no, no, that prediction was a little more defensive. <laughs> but I predicted that he would finish the year uh, as the clear cut number one. Um, honestly, that might not happen either. And I think my is reason- he number three now? <laughs> he is might he be the number, number three. three now. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, yeah, that's a really, really bad go. It's 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 great for you. People will forget all about you predicting Tar Hiroshi's fifty point season last year. That's exactly right. Bad. Like we're completely gone from that. And also everyone will forget because there is no documentation that you and I had very similar <laughs> predictions going. I think we shared three of the five predictions. I don't remember which three they were, but you know what? They're forgotten. They're 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 gone because you know what? They're not written down anywhere. For people to go back and look at. I mean, please do subscribe to The Athletic if you're listening. I promise <laughs> there's a lot of stuff on there that's not garbage predictions. Um, but look, my predictions track record is getting pretty bad, I gotta say. You know, it's 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 just a wild season. I mean, Robbie Fabry's here to prove that the trade was one for one and it absolutely deserves to, you know, he deserves that the the extension and, and all the money that he can get. Has anyone made the joke yet that Fabry wears the number one four? On his jersey, like I don't think so. So I think, you need, I think you need to start this. Right. I think you need to start this. I don't and know what, what the what... second half of that joke is, but that's the first half. I mean, I don't know if there's a player who wears number one that he needs to stand next to. Is there any way you can get Jacob De La Rose to wear the number one so it'll say Fabry De La Rose one four one? I don't. There's something here, but I don't have it. I I think you're close, but I bet if you put you know i bet i bet the community can figure it out here all right this is an official offer if you can write the second half of this Robbie Fabry one for one joke uh i don't know we'll, we'll shout you out what we don't have any merch or anything to give away <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you something we'll figure it out help me yeah, out you, you will Do have me our, a you'll have our platitudes yeah, you'll have our platitudes that's right i mean de la rose's number is 61 i mean there's got to be a way to do it here yeah so. we just stagger it in the right way yeah. and yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll make it work. Uh, somebody who's good at Photoshop. Somebody who's good at the economy. Help me out with this. Yes. Um, nevertheless, so that's game one. Um, game two was kind of the young kids show at first. If Svechnikov gets the Red Wings on the board, Michael Rasmussen uh, jams one in on a goal that gets reviewed for goaltender interference uh, and stands, I think, correctly so personally. Um, who finishes off the scoring there? Nemesnikov got one. Who got the third goal? 
That was your Philip Peronic long bomb, that right? That was. He, that's right. <laughs> uh, you, go ahead. You, I know you've got something on your chest you want to get off here about these empty netters. <laughs> I just can't get over the fact that, like, you know, over the years when we talk about points uh, and we talk about kind of empty points, you know, people talk about secondary assists and people talk about empty net And when you goals. say people, you mean? Uh, I, I mean, I mean the statistics mean community, <laughs> really, and, and me to a certain extent, you know, when we they're not, and again, there's there's a lot more granularity here that I'm that I'm ignoring for the point of simply making a hilarious reference that you know Philip Peronik's leading the team, and 16 of his points are you know secondary assists and empty net goals. Which, again, the reason I bring it up is because historically they haven't really been shown to be repeatable plays, such that you know I wouldn't necessarily count on this happening again. But that being said, there's a whole you know another layer to analyzing these. And you can go back and assign some credit and subjectivity. But by and large, to me, it's just really funny that his point totals keep going up and they're all these, em- you know, traditionally empty points, whether it's empty net goals or uh, secondary assists. But I did tweet out for your Philip Peronic stands. He is the league leader in the empty net goal since he's entered the league. He is fifth or he's got five of them from 140 feet or further away, which means his own zone. He's in first place all by himself over the last three years. That is a Second skill. Place, right. That is a skill. Yeah. I mean, especially if you remember one of them from last season, never even never hit the, the ice. ice. Yeah. I mean, that was literally a roof shot from behind his net that, that hit the middle of the net there. Uh, so it's an impressive skill. I mean, maybe, you know, right after you trade for the guy that wins all the faceoffs, you trade for the guy <laughs> that always hits the empty net. So... You know, hey, teams, sign up. The Wings have a whole host of carnival attractions. <laughs> carnival attractions. Like, okay, here's what I'm going to say <laughs> is that I, I get it. You'd rather have a primary point than a secondary point every day of the week. You'd rather have a uh, goal with a goalie in net than an empty net goal. Two things, though. Number one, being on the ice, for you know, getting empty net goal means that you are on the ice in a high, high leverage situation in which the other team has their goalie pulled, and which the game is still, in theory, in doubt. Um, his was the first empty netter, so that was a one-goal game at that time, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you know, uh, that's, there's a couple things about that. Number one, uh, it's, it is an insurance goal, and you will take those every day of the week. Uh, number two, it, it just shows you a little bit of the trust that I think the coach, and, and you don't need to see that to know that because you can see his minutes and see the trust in that way. But I do think that's kind of always been my one um, talking point about empty net points and empty net goals, especially is that what they, while they don't tell you really a lot about what a player does in the offensive zone, they do tell you a little bit more of, of something that we have a really hard time typically quantifying, um, at least in a box score manner, um, about coaches trust in a player. And so I do think there's, there's that to be said for it. Like, you know, it, it's one reason I think that it's, it's an empty net point, um, can sometimes be a good thing for a player like Nemesnikov, who I think if you only looked at his points with, uh, uh, you know, he, what does he have? Three empty net goals now or just two? Yeah. Yeah. He's got the one that, uh, Mantha gave him. He's got another one. And then the one from, uh, and Mantha set up the, the one the other day too. I mean, that, that's yeah. something that like, you know, Nemestikov has had his fair chances of, uh, of, of, uh, scoring opportunities that he has not scored on <laughs> that, I, that I think he's created. And these empty netters kind of make up for it in that, you know, they, they give him the, a point that he maybe deserves forcing a shorthanded chance or something like that. So in my view, it kind of evens out, but I, I am not here to deny the the hilarity of, of your narrative uh, 
kind of powering forward and powering backward at the same time. Like the points keep coming, but they keep coming in the way that you don't like. Yeah. And I mean, you make all the valid points, right? Obviously, if you're on the ice in a five on six situation, your coach has a lot of trust in you. You're arguably, you know, one of the top two defensemen on your team by that perception. Scoring an empty net goal is an important thing to do. They're the highest shifts and really win probability um, you know, for your team, because they're often the thing that moves your needle all the way up to a hundred percent, you know, very few teams come back to win after having an empty net goal scored on them. So, you know, important to do all of those things. And especially impressive is, is something that someone mentioned to me yesterday, you know, Philip Ronick leads the league in these, but you have to remember they the wings did not have a whole lot of games true, true. in those three years where someone would have been pulling a goalie against them. So he's doing this in very few opportunities as well. Uh, and, you know, by and large, it, it's it's an important thing for him to be able to seal the game. This is more a joke than anything else, because at this point I've committed to the bit and I've got to stick with it. Uh, but it, to me, it's just funny because you see him score all of these empty net goals. And then you look at kind of him at five on five. The guy has taken 63 unblocked shots at five on five. Unblocked shots are important because those are the ones that factor into the expected goals model. Those 63 shots have added up to a grand total of 1.3 expected goals for. So it's not like he's even not scoring when he should have scored. It's just he takes really bad shots and doesn't doesn't seem to score on them. But man, oh man, can he hit on the empty net? <laughs> That's true. I mean, the, the other thing that you said about uh, they, they can lead you to think something's going to be repeatable is that his production's like astonishingly consistent. It's like he's like 0.5 on the dot every year. He's a little bit ahead of it right now. And maybe if you subtract those two empty net goals, it's actually right in line. But it's astonishingly consistent year over year. You you know you are getting 0.5 points per game, plus or minus 0.02 points per game every year from him. Yeah, and I mean, basically, as we're trending him out over his three years, I can count on him getting two empty net goals a season because one third of his goals are on the empty net. So sure. he, I think he, uh, he's he got his two for this season with the one against Carolina and then the one... Uh, you know, here against Columbus. So there, there's, there's a the bet, two right MGM there. needs to place over on 0.5 more empty net goals for Philip Peronik this season. I think I'd take the over. I think it would take the over too. You know, he, I think he'll go ahead and get him up, get himself up to six here on his career. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, he is consistent with his point production, albeit the makeup of his points continue to change. Like to me, it's just fascinating seeing a guy who plays so much at even strength for the Red Wings that how does the guy walk away with effectively four points at even strength? He's got four uh, four assists at even strength. Um, that's the thing that I think is just most surprising to me for a guy who's on the ice as much as he is. No, it's fair. And the ice time is the eternal counterpoint to it is that, you know, as much as the, the points are impressive, it's like you, you should probably expect your guy who's played the most minutes to have the most points or close to it uh, too. So I, I think that's very fair. Yeah, and so I should I should correct myself. It's actually two primary assists, five secondary assists, so seven points at five on five, but two primary points at, at five on five, right. which is just fascinating for me to, to, to see here. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So uh, let's move away from the empty net into the full net. And the person occupying it for both games for the Red Wings was not Thomas Grice, the Red Wings uh, free agent signing this past offseason, but rather in both games of a back-to-back, it was Calvin Pickard in net. When I saw it the first game, I thought, okay, they're just going to give Grice a reset. They'll come back to him on Sunday after he had the the early end to his night on Thursday. They go back to Calvin Pickard, and you know, if this was the NFL, we'd call it a quarterback controversy. Yeah, I mean, I think I was surprised because so number one, you're you're watching the first game, and and Pickard really wasn't tested all that yeah. much. I mean, he he had which a is a pretty, test in itself, right? Right, exactly. And, you know, people talk about sometimes that goalies, if they don't face a lot of shots, especially early on, that it's hard for them to get into a rhythm. You know, and I mean, Chris Osgood talks about it all the time, that that was one of his challenges was when he saw the puck in his end of the ice, you know, once or twice a period, it was kind of tough to stay engaged. And that kind of went was that way with for Pickard with the shots being 15 to two at one point in the first period of that first game. Um, So Certainly its own challenge, but ultimately didn't really face a lot of high quality chances against. Um, and then that second game, I thought he was tested maybe a little bit more, but even still not not really all that much in the way of high quality chances. But I was shocked that he got that second start. I think the broadcast actually after the first game said, why don't you give him the second start tomorrow? I think it might have been Mickey Redman on, on the broadcast on the post game talking about giving him the start. And then sure enough, he, he leads him out there for the second one um, and, and wins another hockey game. And so we're now getting multiple non-Jonathan Bernier hockey wins, and I'm not really sure what to do at this point. Yeah. Um, it's, what it really means for me is, is less for Calvin Pickard, um, no offense to Calvin Pickard, because Jonathan Bernier will be back at some point and he will get the lion's share of the start, unless they trade him. And then I think it is you know, we, we come back to this conversation, but I just wonder what it means for Thomas Grice. I mean, one of the questions that we got in the mailbag, I'll spoil it right now, is about Grice in the expansion draft and, you know, whether at this point leaving him exposed is, is a realistic option. Right now, he's really the only one they need to protect. But if they re-sign Jonathan Bernie, for example, you'd probably right now have really no worries about Grice getting claimed by Seattle with the way that the season's gone for him. Yeah, I mean, potentially not. Or, you know, again, he's a guy that has a track record of being very, very good. In fact, he's been really good the last five or six years yeah, towards absolutely. the top of the league in terms of goals saved above uh, expectations. So I don't know that if I'm Seattle, I would really let one season on a bottom five team totally derail my you know decision to take him uh, if I'm, again, waiting past evidence more so than the present. But it's certainly an interesting question because – you know, if Pickard can play well enough, I think there's several things to think about. One being, you know, do you leave Grice unprotected? But kind of the more important and more uh, acute one for me is, does this mean you can actually trade Jonathan Bernier? Uh, Something you and I have talked about. I I mean, I've been terrified what would happen if you didn't have Jonathan Bernier on this team over the last two years. He's 
been just absolutely otherworldly and, and, and sensational. But, you know, you had two really good games uh, from Pickard, albeit games where he wasn't tested a whole lot. Yeah. Part of this is I don't know how, how good I think Columbus is. Like, you know, they're going to go play Tampa and Florida this coming week. And I, I think if it's Calvin Pickard for the bulk of them, it's going to be a very different experience in there for him, trying to stack up to two teams that are going to pepper him in a way that Columbus certainly did not. Regardless of whether Detroit can mostly keep its compete level where it was at, it's just going to happen against these these caliber of teams. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, if you look at Detroit's best performances on the season by expected goals for percentage at 5-on-5, five five, uh, the second game of the series was their best performance. The first game of the series was their sixth best performance. And then they have another game against Columbus from back in January that ranks as their third best performance. So three of their top six performances on the season are against Columbus, including both games from this past weekend. And I think that's really important to note when you're trying to justify or kind of think through, well, how did Calvin Pickard really play? Because, you know, you're you're trying to make an assessment of exactly these things. Well, if you take a look at just all situations, expected goals um, against for the Red Wings, the game that that second game was the fewest expected goals the Wings have given up in any situation. It was 1.18. Wow. Calvin Pickard was not tested. And then if you look at the first game of the series, it was the fifth fewest the Wings had given up in terms uh, at 1.89. So you're really looking at two of probably Detroit's best defensive games on the season that just so happened to come in front of Calvin Pickard. So I'm not going to personally read too much into Pickard's performance because truth be told, he just was not tested. That is very interesting. And I think a, a, a very relevant consideration here. I mean, for me, the standard on whether or not to trade Jonathan Bernier should be less about, you know, can you survive and, and win games for what's ultimately less than one month and just more about what the return is and more about whether you think you're going to have a harder time re-signing him um, as a free agent than you would if you just extended him. That to me, those are the conversations more so than can you win games between April 13th and, and May 8th. Um but I don't think it's insignificant either, maybe less so about winning games and more so about, uh, you know, being in games. And you really don't want your your last month of the season to, to become a miserable experience that sets the tone for um, the offseason. So uh, I do think that's relevant. But but to me, I think it's the, the Bernier thing starts and ends with, you know, are you going to be able to re-sign him in the offseason? And what's the offer? I mean, I, to me, I think we've talked about like, I don't think you were wild about even moving him for a third round pick. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, just because, again, I've been absolutely terrified of what the Red Wings look like without him in the lineup because of how good he has been. I mean, we've we've joked about how few uh, wins the Wings had without him. I mean, they went, you know, 40-some games without another goalie winning a hockey game before Thomas Grace finally got his first win. So, you know, it, it, it it's certainly a bit terrifying to, to witness. But uh, if the Wings can play the way they did over the weekend – consistently where they have a 72% expected goals for percentage at five on five and then a 59% uh, expected goals for percentage at five on five, then yeah, I mean, put whoever you want uh, in back of the net, it should be fine. And you should be willing to move Bernier for a third. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a good way to put it. Um, the other interesting kind of roster consideration out of this weekend was Troy Stetcher did not play. Um, and that was a coach's decision, a healthy scratch. And so 
Um, ultimately, what I think that comes down to is the Red Wings were atrocious in Nashville on Thursday. Everybody knew that. Jeff Blaschel basically said at practice Monday he could have taken any single one of them out of the lineup. Stetcher was the guy they chose to take out. Um, he's going to be back in the lineup, though. Like This is not you know falling out of favor and and whatever, uh, panic alarms or whatever on Troy Stetcher, who I think has been one of the Red Wings' two or three best um, defensemen on the team this season, although he has missed some time and you know maybe that maybe that fades to memory how good he was, especially in the very first month of the year. Um, I, I don't think that makes it like a huge deal, but you know, at the same time, I, I am surprised that if you're going to choose one of the, I guess it was seven in Nashville still on Thursday to go out, I guess you're choosing two of them because you're going back to six. I still think Stetcher probably, you know, is, is one of their certainly top four defensemen. Yeah, I mean, I still think when he's playing well and when he's at the top of his game, he is Detroit's most skilled defenseman right now. Um, however, I don't disagree with the, the, the decision to sit him. Personally, for me, I, I would be purely speculating here, but I just don't think he looks fully healthy when, and he hasn't really looked himself since coming back. I'm going to read off some fun numbers to you here, Max. So, um, again, evaluating play, this is just a, a, a crude way of doing it. We can look at his five on five expected goals for percentage. So again, you know, the quality of shots taken by his team compared to those given up since coming back from injury, here are his five on five expected goals for percentages, 19 19.2%, 26.2%, 45.9%, 17.9%, 17.6%, 10.8% and 14%. That is god awful. You know, again, normally you want to be north of 50% and he had been north of 50% uh for most of the games prior to the injury, but since coming back, I mean, we're talking about a guy who's averaging like 18% 5 on 5 expected goals for percentage. That's simply not going to get it done uh for you right now. So, I think he does need to work some things out whether that's just a little bit more time to get a little bit healthier or figure out what has changed for him over the last few games. From what I could gather, a, a big part of the decision came down to special teams. Uh, it sounded like Jeff Blasher was saying, you know, like there's guys who have a, a heavier special teams workload than Stetcher, for example, which would explain someone like Juice who, you know, even if even if Stetcher's having a, a tough uh, little stretch here, like juice gives up plenty in his own end too, typically. Um, but you know, the juice brings a different element on quarterbacking a power play than Stetcher does. I think Stetcher, he has killed penalties this year, but he probably doesn't take on nearly as much of a, of a role there as say a Stahl or a DeKaiser would, um, which certainly explains why those two would stay in the lineup, uh, over Stetcher. And obviously Hronik does everything. Merrill, a, a heavily leaned on penalty killer. Nemeth, a heavily leaned on penalty killer. Um, I think it makes sense. It's just not I can understand it like logically. Um, and maybe my, maybe this is the, the bias of like, you know, knowing how good Stetcher was in the first month, month and a half of the season talking. It just, it really shocked me to hear that it was a coach's decision, but um, you know, hearing those numbers, I guess it shouldn't shock. I mean, those are, those are pretty black and white. Yeah. I mean, you can't play any worse than that. And, and there is a definitely a little bit of a gap between him and kind of the next worst defenseman over that period of time. So, Again, part of me, when, you, when you're trying to reconcile the results from the first half of the season to the second half of the season, I, I can't really fathom how he is not at least some part uh, hindered by whatever injury he had. I mean, he was out for almost a month 
with that injury. I think it was uh, February 19th to March 11th where the was the gap between uh, games played. So to me, I, I just have to wonder if there is something still lingering to a certain extent that is limiting his ability to play at the level he was playing at earlier. That's really interesting. And that's, uh, there you go. I mean, I, I think that says it all. I, I didn't really look at the uh, advanced profile of his numbers since coming back from injury, but those are really concrete. And uh, I think that does tell you tell you a lot. Um, it does sound like, you know, on the, on the other injury fronts, it sounds like Bobby Ryan is day-to-day uh, and he could be back uh, relatively soon, maybe not necessarily in these next two games, but hope. I think it sounds like hopefully within the week is what they're thinking. Um, and then Bernier, I think, has begun skating again, um, but they don't know exactly when he'll return to like a formal practice. Yeah, and having Jonathan Bernier back is going to be huge. Having Bobby Ryan back is going to obviously be huge, and particularly ahead of the trade deadline, knowing that both of those guys – um, will be healthy around that time. They're probably the two prime guys uh, outside of Luke Glendening that that I think you're looking to move here. Yeah, and certainly those implications are, are huge. And Sam Gagne uh, not on the ice at practice today either. So um, that's relevant. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Um, I think that's everything we got off of this weekend and today's practice. Do you want to go to the mailbag? Yeah, let's do it. There are some really uh, thick ones in here today that we can go off on, including one that I think we've danced around in previous episodes. So we'll start there. Sebastian Sterlings says, uh, Corey Promen ranked Dylan Genther as his top 2021 draft prospect today. That is on theathletic.com. You should go check that out. Uh, Corey's got some an, an updated uh, March draft ranking. I would highly recommend it. So Sebastian wants to know, how much better does than the next guy does Genther have to be for the Red Wings to select another winger? He, of course, is a winger playing in the WHL. Yeah, I mean, Genther's certainly a heck of a player. I think we've thrown his name out um, in the past. And... Uh, so he's he's certainly off to a hot start. He's got basically averaging two points per game right now uh, as a draft eligible player, which is just something that hasn't been done in the WHL in quite some time. So uh, definitely an exciting player to watch for me. I think we've talked about this. I don't see a sizable gap between really a, a cluster of you know six or seven players. And so in in my opinion, I I think. Uh, there, that he's not substantially better. I think if you are going to go for that winger over the center, you have to, number one, not just be 
certain that the player is better, but you have to be more certain. I think the certainty of it uh, is more important than maybe how much better they really are. And so for me, I think you're looking at a difference between like Lafreniere and Perfetti level of difference between those guys to say, yeah, I'm taking the winger ahead of the center in that regard, even if both guys are going to be great players. I need at least that level of a gap uh, to, to go that route. And thus far, it's early. It's only been nine games for Dylan Ginther. Obviously, he's scoring uh, to, you know, two points per game right now, which is what's got everybody excited. But um, I think I'll be interested to see if he can sustain that. What's interesting about this year is that I don't trust like 85% of the North American numbers. Like even when we talk about like historical context, it's like, okay, Genther's, Genther's off to this two points per game start. Let's say he keeps it up. Let's say he keeps it up in, in the, when does the WHL season end? Like end of May or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. They're going a little bit longer this year. So it's going to be a shorter sample. Yes. But it's also going to be a sample in these weird conditions of, you know, people pick some people picking up after doing nothing. Some people picking up after playing in like the AJHL or other leagues or whatever. I I don't know how to compare even just like, you know, base numbers, box score numbers to a previous year, given how what the different circumstances, even just between different teams are this year, let alone the circumstances of the overall league. Yeah, I I I think everyone's going to have that same difficulty, um, you know, especially when you're evaluating this crop. Um, not only are you having the challenge of all of these CHL teams that are uh, much smaller sample sizes, much different challenges, but then you're going to also have to combat like issues you haven't had to combat with in drafts before with recency bias. I mean, the, the Swedish junior leagues haven't played in 2021, right? I mean, they stopped uh, right around December of last year, if I'm remember, remembering correctly. So, I mean, you're almost going to be going like half a year between seeing some of those guys and then seeing the finishing of some of the CHL seasons. I mean, I think the OHL is still setting up a bubble uh, right now. So it's just, it's completely unprecedented and a very fascinating, I think, challenge uh, when evaluating all these guys. So, yeah, my gap is I, I think you would need a sizable difference between Genther and, say, Matt Paneers or Owen Power for me to um, to de- for me to decide that's who I prefer at, uh, at, at let's say, it's number one overall at the Red Wings are picking. That's not likely, by the way. Right now, ba- right now, based on where the Red Wings are at, their most likely outcome it'd be, would be to pick sixth. And I know you guys love picking sixth. Yeah, I mean that's that's uh, might as well, right? So that's where uh, obviously Philip Zadina and Mort Sider were drafted. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't think Genther's getting to six if if this is the kind of season he's going to put up. Um, really, what to me this question is about is the positional value of centers versus wingers versus defensemen. I would order it probably center defenseman winger. I think you would order it center winger defenseman. Yeah, for me it'd be center winger defenseman um, with the gap between center and winger being a little bit and the gap between winger and defenseman being a little bit more. See, that's funny. Cause I would say center and defenseman a little bit and defenseman and winger a little bit more. So here, here's the way that I'll frame it. So if you're asking me what pieces of a team do you need to win a championship? I would go center defenseman winger. Yeah. If you're asking me the certainty with which you can accurately project a player from the time of their draft to what they're going to be 
it's center winger defenseman and there's a gap between winger and defenseman. I see. I think if you if you look at defensemen historically, teams have not done a good job of picking defensemen at the top of the draft and having them pan out when you compare them back to wingers and centers drafted. I think truth be told, teams have a lot of difficulty evaluating defensemen. Um, I think you see it at the NHL level as well. That persists. Teams struggle to sort out, you know, who's going to be a good defenseman and who's not. It's how you have guys like Shea Theodore, you know, just being tossed aside by the Ducks to Vegas. And all of a sudden he's the number one defenseman in Vegas. It's how you have, you know, scenarios like that play out. It's how you have Ryan Murray go third overall in a draft uh, or maybe even second overall. I can't even remember right now off the top of my head. And that guy never really panned out. It's why you have Eric Johnson go first overall in a draft. And while he's been a solid NHLer, he never hit the heights that you were expecting him to hit. Um, you know, Aaron Eckblad, I think, is stepping into his own as well. He's another top, you know, drafted defenseman. But to me, I just haven't seen those high-end defensemen consistently perform at the same level. I think the tide is turning a little bit. Uh, you've obviously seen Bowen Byram go well. Moritz Sider's gone well. Quinn Hughes has gone well. Um, but there's still some guys that we haven't really seen as much of. You know, we haven't seen as much of Evan Bouchard. You haven't seen your Noah Dobsons as much uh, to, to know. And those guys are all top 15 picks right there. So it to me, I just have a little bit less certainty in the ability to do it. I get that. So, so this is kind of the uh, it, it's it's more important to make sure that you're getting a hit uh, then maybe you're taking the biggest possible swing in that sense. That's exactly right. Like I would rather hit and maybe come in and, and know exactly what I'm going to get and be able to be confident in what I'm drafting than get a guy who I think is this, but actually has but a range not, of outcomes right. that's much wider. Yeah. And if he's not, then I'm completely whiffed on that pick. And I think that's been my issue is when you just go back and look um, at, at the performance of defensemen drafted over the last decade, it is very up and down for a lot of defensemen that have gone in the top 10. I get that. I, I think my philosophy is rooted in more the thing that you can always typically find when you need it is a scoring winger. And the thing that you have a really hard time finding it when you need it is a really reliable top four, if not top pair defenseman and a number one or number two center, a legit number one or number two center. Uh, I think those are really hard to find and you got to pay up um, kind of exceptionally if, you, if you're going to be able to pry one away. So I like to, if, if I, I mean, I like to, I see this as if I've done it. I would like to, if I were a GM, uh, use the vast majority of my highest picks on centers and defensemen, unless the gap was so undeniable. And I think you could make an argument last year that with Lucas Raymond, you could make an argument that it was, that, that it was that that sizable, especially if you were someone who had some uncertainty about, say, a Jamie Drysdale or a Jake Sanderson, and you didn't have kind of really any questions about Lucas Raymond. I mean, really, the only questions about Lucas Raymond is what's going to translate, because his skill set is really good, and, and you're seeing flashes of the um, well-rounded game that he can produce between his shot, his playmaking, his compete, and all that stuff. Um, you know, I, I think you can justify that Lucas Raymond pick for sure. But I think if you go back and listen, uh, I was not ruling out a Jake Sanderson pick partly for that reason that I just think when you have a top pair defenseman, that's so hard to find and so expensive if you don't get it through the draft. Like, you know, think about what the, the, the top defensemen on the market get paid. I mean, think about what Jacob Truba got paid as a quote unquote top pair defenseman. I think this 
certainly fairly also speaks to your point about being unable to recognize what it actually looks like because that deal looks terrible um, in hindsight. But, um, you know, I, I just look at the acquisition costs and then the financial costs of getting top defensemen. And I think it, it, it way exceeds that of a winger where you can go out and you can get a Taylor Hall um, and, and you can get a, I don't know, I'm, I'm blanking on who all these wingers are, but there's so many. Any given year, there's three wingers that you're more than happy to add into your top six in the trade market. Gustav Nyquist, go ahead. It's just going to cost you a second and a third round pick. No problem. Yeah, so I, I completely buy that that uh, that thought process. Like It is certainly difficult, and you're going to spend a lot to get one of these defensemen. I think my argument is don't spend your first round, like your highest draft capital on an uncertainty. So just, just for a pure exercise, we'll run through a couple of you, right? 2010 uh, first round, uh, the top in the top 10, these are your top two defensemen taken. Eric Goodbranson, Dylan McElrath. Later in the draft, you have Cam Fowler, you have Justin Falk, you have John Merrill, you have Steven Johns, you have Justin Hull. These are all defensemen that have ultimately at least equaled the level of the guys that go in front of them. You know, you go to 2011, it's Adam Larson is your first defenseman taken. Two picks behind him, Mika Zibanejad. Pick behind him, Mark Shifley. Pick behind him, Sean Couturier. And it's like, okay, there's a little bit weird there. Then you get a couple of good defensemen in the top 10 there with Dougie Hamilton and Jonas Brodeen. And then you follow it up with Duncan Siemens at 11th overall as another defenseman who had never actually made the NHL. 2012, Ryan Murray, second overall. Griffin Reiner, fourth overall. I think those teams would rather have other players there. They did get, you know, that year actually was very D heavy where five through nine was, or five through 10 was actually defensemen. And it was Morgan Riley, Hampus Lindholm, Matt Dumba. Great. But then you go Derek Pouliot, Jacob Truba, who's kind of fallen off a cliff, and Slater Cuckoo, a guy who is not really going to amount to much in the NHL. So, you know, as you go through these, to me, there's just, there's too many misses in there for me to spend that top 10 pick on a miss. Like, sure, if it works out, great. But I'm missing on a lot of these really talented forwards there that I bet in hindsight, if those teams go back and do it, they would much rather have that player. And you've seen a number of these top defensemen slide into the second round, slide into the third round. And that's actually where some of these guys have come from. Yeah, all right. I mean, I I, I think... These are both perfectly coherent ideologies, to be honest. I mean, this is also kind of how I view, like, when I rank uh, the Red Wings farm system, which I probably am due to do now that I think about it. I haven't probably done it in a year. Um, but I, I factor in, you know, how sure I am that they're going to be an NHLer, and, and that's one reason why I had Giovanni Smith higher a year ago than I think a lot of people were expecting is because we had already seen him play NHL games. I was pretty dang positive that Giovanni Smith um, could be an NHLer. And that moved him ahead of guys who might have a higher ceiling for me because they also had potentially no floor. Yeah, and 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 that's the challenge um, is balancing all of that information. And so it, it's completely right. There is no right way to do the NHL draft. Uh, otherwise, teams would have figured it out by now. And that's why you see, you know, so many different approaches. I think to me, uh, the the two things that value the most is making sure you never ever miss. So taking the player that you have the highest confidence in getting and reaching the highest uh, potential uh, of their play. And then the second piece is, is making sure you're, you're acquiring as many opportunities to, to get players like that. So, so taking as many swings at this draft as you can. Now, does that only apply 
because you still want to take some, you, you still want to take your swings on like a William Wallander later in the draft, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly where you do it, right? I yeah. mean, that's why the Wings go out uh, two years ago. They have multiple second round picks and they can take a swing on an Auntie Tuomisto and an Albert Johansson in that because they had two other picks yeah. uh, there. You know, same thing uh, last season where, again, you have multiple second round picks. You can go and take a swing on a Project William Wallander who has every tool you want of a defenseman, but just is going to need a little bit of time to put it together because you have multiple shots to do it. What I'm saying is I'd, I'd rather you know use the shots at the top to make sure I get something good yeah. and then take the swings on the upside a little bit later because who knows, maybe you are uh, Nashville who takes a swing on a Sam Gerrard and then unfortunately trades him too early. And now Sam Gerrard's one of the best defensemen in the NHL. Um, that's the kind of swing that I think you want to be taking. So what our two uh, philosophies uh, would converge at is Matty Beneers. Matty Beneers, let's go. All right, there you go. Uh, here's an easy one from Brad Monastere. Where does Seattle fall within the draft lottery? That one is third. So they have the third best odds no matter what. So if the Red Wings finish third from the bottom, you add one more spot that they can and presumably will uh, drop in the lottery because of it. So, so really, if you finish with the first or second best odds, the worst you can pick is third or fourth, respectively. If you finish with the third best or the, the third worst record, I should say, you can pick uh, sixth. And if you finish with the fourth worst record, you can pick seventh. I think they entered today with the fifth worst record, so they could pick as low as seventh in the draft uh, entering Monday. Yeah, my I'll be interested to see how the NHL does this because when Vegas entered the draft, Vegas was given Seattle's following the same rules. So Vegas had the third best odds. But at the same time, they actually gave Arizona the exact same odds. And Arizona was the third worst team that year. Hmm. So what they ended up doing was they ended up pulling small percentage points from the teams above them to make the math work to where. But what about in terms of dropping? Like not in terms of odds. Yes, yes. In terms, I'm talking about in terms of probability of first overall. They had the exact same probabilities for first, second, and third. Uh, whereas Arizona, um, I think, had a little bit of a different odds beyond that for fourth, fifth, and sixth. But they actually had the same odds for first, second, and third back in 2017, both Vegas and Arizona. So let's say teams 9, 10, and 11. Not Sorry, just, I guess just 9 and 10. Just 9 and 10. Yeah, let's say teams 9 and 10 win the top two spots. And Detroit finishes with the third worst record, and Seattle also obviously has those third odds. Let's say they do it just like they did with Vegas. Who's picking uh, later in that scenario between Detroit and Seattle? That's a good question. Um, I honestly can't tell you the answer there. I, I think, think it, it would is, be Detroit. I think Seattle I, gets the edge in that in that tiebreak scenario. Yeah, I think that's how it would work as well. Um, but I'm basing that entirely on how Tankathon does it. <laughs> Yeah, and that's how it worked in 2017 because New Jersey, Philly, and Dallas all won, and they all jumped up. And so Vegas went from third to sixth. Arizona went from fourth to seventh. Um, but they have actually the same probability of moving up, which is also interesting. All right. Um, M. Rosh uh, says, was that the end of Dennis Chalowski? Who else will get an audition before the end of the year? Uh, obviously, Mark is referring to um, – the Red Wings sending Dennis Chalowski back to Grand Rapids today, along with Matias Brome. We probably should have mentioned that at the top of the show. They did that. Um, they brought Giovanni Smith up to the taxi squad. You would assume um, he would play uh, on Tuesday night. Um, 
So let's get to Mark's question. Have we just seen the last of Dennis Shalowski in Detroit? Um, I will reserve that until I see what happens with the trade deadline. Cause, uh, right now we're not really talking about any of Detroit's defensemen being moved out, but you really never know. And so if one or two are moved out, then sure. That certainly opens up uh, a slot for Dennis Chalowski. If not, then I do think it is the last because I can't imagine the wings hit the expansion draft without seeing Gustav Lindstrom again. Yeah. Okay. Um, my answer is no, I don't think we've seen the last Dennis Chalowski in Detroit. I think this is just one of those, one of those, you know, I don't want to call it a blip because this is obviously a trend by now. Um, but the, the Red Wings are making moves with these players a, a lot. You know, Smith was sent down earlier this season and obviously he's back up now. I, I think you'll see Dennis Chalowski again on Detroit before the end of the season, but this is a natural lead into Lars's question. Who do you think the most likely Red Wing is to become a Kraken and why? starting to think the answer might be Dennis Chalowski. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. I think it's going to be Chalowski. At one point, I might have said Nemesnikov, but I, I kind of wonder if Nemet, between the way they've handled Svechnikov um, I, and, and the way Nemesnikov has played, I kind of have a hard time seeing the Red Wings protecting Svechnikov over Nemesnikov. Now, they got to find somebody else to expose in order to protect Nemesnikov because him and Nielsen right now would be the obvious two to expose. Um, but you can extend somebody and make that you know, pretty, pretty easy to, to make happen. Um, I would have said Nemestikov preseason. Now I think Nemestikov ends up on the protected list. Yeah, I'll be interested to see. I'm still not sold that they don't leave him unprotected, but... Uh, it's ultimately still at, in like a 29-year-old player on a one-year deal, but... Right, yeah, right, right. So I, I'm not sold that they leave him unprotected, but either way, I do think, you know, from from this particular question, I, I wouldn't be shocked that Dennis Tulowski is the guy... Kristoff says Berger in the SHL, NHL, or AHL next season. Uh, I think it's going to be the AHL, but I would not rule out him, you know, hitting the uh, NHL roster. I mean, the guy is a point per game player in the SHL right now. So it's a, uh, I wouldn't be shocked if he does it, but I, I think maybe the AHL is where he ultimately lands. I think AHL as well. Uh, Tyler McDonald, would it be more beneficial to improve in the standings the next two seasons uh, largely in part to rookies and an improving core or continue being a bottom feeder and have a shot at a, and I guess in, in this case, he means a better shot at Shane Wright, Mitch Kov, and Connor Bedard. You know, it's tough. Like with the lottery changes that have been made, I still don't think they do enough to reward, um, the bad teams, the really bad teams. Uh, you know, now they've changed it so that only two out of three can jump. Um, and then, but beyond that, I mean, there's still the, the top overall seed gets what 18 and a half percent, uh, as the probability of landing the first overall pick, which means 82% of the time, the worst team in the league is not picking first overall. Uh, now granted 2022, 2023, there are multiple franchise players in those drafts, uh, in my opinion. Um, I think both 2022 and 2023 have three guys that could be franchise uh, players there. So picking in the top three would certainly be advantageous. I think if you're sitting here right now, that is Detroit's quickest and best path to sustained contention. Um, but that and but that being said, you would obviously only see a significant change in standing position if the guys you currently have right now, take significant leaps forward. So to me, really, either strategy is viable. 
I kind of resolved at last summer uh, to take the position that you cannot rely on the draft lottery for anything. Um, and I think I'm going to stand by that. Um, I, I just think that, like you said, even in the scenario where you are the worst team in the NHL, the odds are not just against you. They're overwhelmingly against you. And I, I think the new floor at number three is a good thing, but I also think it, you know, every step down you take from number one, number two, whatever, you get that much less sure of, of what you're, what you're doing. Cause we can say there's multiple franchise players right now, but things change. I mean, what would be said about Atu Ratu two years ago, as, as we talk about like the 2023 draft, for example, uh, we would have thought Atu Ratu had the chance to be a slam dunk number one overall pick. Now I think in Corey's rankings today, he was in the teens and maybe he's still going to be a great player, but I just the, the farther away from that kind of North Star you get from that Shane Wright, from that Matvey Michkov, Connor Bedard. I mean, that might be a true one-two holy cow situation there. Um, but you know, to me, like I, I wouldn't necessarily put Lambert in the same tier as Shane Wright right now. I I don't know if that's the common opinion or not. I mean, I, I've kind of got Shane Wright in a tier of his own. Um, and so, even if even if you could guarantee yourself. Uh, the number one or two or three pick, which I guess if you really truly, you know, tanked by the letter of the, the word, um, you, you could, there's real trade-offs to what you do to your team by losing that much for that prolonged period of time. You know, I think probably the simplest way to that outcome is by trading current core players. I mean, that that's probably how you get there is you trade away someone who's a big part of what you do and also, you know, uh, that that extends your timeline, but that hurts you then when when the player that you've just uh, bottomed out for gets to your roster and and you put yourself in a really bad spot and 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 that's if you do it if you get what you want like what happens if you finish third from the bottom and now you're picking fifth or sixth and you're just getting like another run of the mill for a signed player you know uh, it, that can really kill you so what's better for the team I think marginal improvement is better for the team I don't think the playoffs are better for the team's long term future. But I, I don't see any way that's happening anyway. I don't see any way they're out of the bottom 10 in the next two years. So I don't think you have to worry about it. Yeah, I mean, really, the only way you're going to, quote unquote, guarantee anything is, like you said, Max, if you finish worst overall. But that has, you know, other ramifications to it. I mean, you, you have to make sure you're not becoming Buffalo. You have to make sure you're not becoming, you know, Ottawa. These Arizona. teams that have sat consistently at the bottom. Yeah, Arizona, you know teams that have really struggled to dig their way out. And and I think, you know, there's this discussion about culture and whatnot. And and the Wings have done a really nice job kind of preserving this culture and, and preserving the mentality of being a winning organization, even though the last few years have, have kind of uh, not really been the case. So you, you do have to be careful of that. But it it's tough because 2022, 2023, there are three legitimate players in each of those drafts. And you know, it's enticing. It's enticing to sit there and say, if okay, if I can land, you know, Shane Wright, or if I can land a Brad Lambert and then come back with an Adam Fantilli in 2023 or a you know, Mitchkoff, then yeah, I mean, you're you're certainly well on the road back and it would fit the model of, you know, a lot of the top teams right now looking at what the Leafs have done with, you know, Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner, those are both top five picks. And then William Nylander is, I think, seventh overall, if I remember correctly. So, you know, that that mold fits. Morgan Riley is a top 10 pick. So 
you know, that's how the Leafs got there. Obviously, we know Edmonton with Drysaddle and McDavid, you know, uh, Pittsburgh with Crosby and Malkin. Like, that's really been the MO for a lot of those teams to get there. But that's more that they got there out of luck than intentionally trying to be there. Yep, I think so, too. All right, I think that uh, will probably do it for us today. The Red Wings have four games this week. Tuesday, Thursday, they are at Florida. Both of those games, 7 p.m. And then a couple of games next weekend at Tampa, 1 p.m. and noon. The second one of those is the noon game on NBC. So national opportunity, national TV opportunity for the Red Wings uh, against the league's best team. We will be back at you on Wednesday. Uh, and, and we'll have, uh, obviously, some, some takeaways from the Tuesday night game and, and get you set for the rest of the way. In the meantime, March Madness is here, and the Athletics College basketball crew brings you the Ding You, presented by BetMGM. We'll cover all parts of the action, both on the court and at the sportsbook, grabbing insight from the Athletics College basketball writers, and picking the brain of BetMGM's top bookmakers. The next show is Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Daily Ding feed and streaming on the Athletics YouTube channel. Make sure you check that out, and we'll talk to you Wednesday. 